What a wonderful passage we have tonight, hey? Uh, I'm Dave, one of the student ministers, and it's a great privilege to be here with you. Well, growing up, I used to love courtroom dramas. Has anyone here seen Law and Order? Oh, more than I thought. Okay, this is great. All right, I thought I was just revealing my age to you. That's good. Well, Law and Order, at least the classic Law and Order, it's got this opening line from this American voice. Steep and booming, so I can't do it properly, but I'll try. It says this, In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important people. The police who investigate the crimes and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. And then a gavel would sound. Love it. So much drama. From there, you'd see, you'd see a crime unfold. The arrest would be made. But all the real drama happened right at the end in the courtroom. Because there, you'd see before the judge, the defendant and the prosecutor would fight it out. Well, today, we find ourselves in a Jewish courtroom scene. The court is a Sanhedrin. The judge is the high priest, and the defendant before him is Stephen. We met Stephen last week. He's, he's one of the seven who the apostles chose to distribute the food to the church. And he's, he's a pretty unlikely defendant, I've got to say, in a lot of ways. He's unlikely because as we see in our opening verses today, he's someone who the Holy Spirit was powerfully at work in. Verse 8, he's full of grace and power. Verse 10, he's wise. But as is always the case, with his godly people like Stephen, he's going to attract hostility. And so verse 9, we're introduced to his accusers. They're a group of Jews from a nearby synagogue called the Freedmen Synagogue. And these guys have heard Stephen's teaching about Jesus, and they've seen how Jesus has worked powerfully through him how he's performed miracles, wonders, and signs. Sadly, they don't give their life to Jesus when they see and hear these things. Instead, they see Stephen as a threat, a threat to their Jewish way of life. And so they try to get rid of him. In verse 10, they engage him in arguments. But Stephen has been given uh, God's wisdom, and so they can't stand up to it. But failing this, they turn to dirty tactics they set up a uh, smear campaign. They start rumors that Stephen is blaspheming against God. And once these rumors start circulating, they stir up the Jewish mob who capture Stephen and drag him into the Sanhedrin. So here's Stephen before the high priest. And these, two, these false witnesses, they come forward and they've got two key accusations. Accusation one... Stephen says that Jesus will destroy the temple. Accusation two, Stephen says that Jesus will change Moses' customs, the law. Now, Stephen's in a very dicey situation here. Nothing was more sacred and precious to the Jews than the temple uh, and the law. Their whole livelihood are dependent on it. And it also raises a really significant challenge to this early growing church. Raises the challenge of, are they in step with God's ways in the Old Testament, or are they not? Have these, have these followers of Jesus, have they actually abandoned God and his ways, as revealed in the Old Testament? But right from the start, God makes it crystal clear that Stephen and the early church, 
They are in step with his will. Have a look at verse 15. Hear these words. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Isn't that just striking? Uh, This is supposed to take us back to Exodus 34. After Moses received the law from God at Mount Sinai, his face was radiant. So for Stephen's face to be like an angel is to associate Stephen with the great Moses of the Old Testament. God here is giving his stamp of approval. Stephen and the early church, they are the ones who are in step with God's ways as he revealed in the Old Testament. Well, after hearing these accusations, the high priest then turns to Stephen and he says, chapter 7, verse 1, is this true? Now, at this point, I'll tell you this because I've watched Law and Order. At this point, Stephen could have gotten off the hook in a number of ways. He could have undermined the witnesses, showed that it was all bogus. He could have pointed out all the faults in what they said. You know, actually told them what Jesus really taught about the law and about the temple. But he doesn't do this. And in fact, in the next point in the outline, you'll see I've put Stephen's defense in quotation marks. And that's because what Stephen goes on to say in this lengthy speech, it's not really a defense at all. I think you'll pick that up as we go along. You see, with God's approval, he doesn't even try to win the approval of these men in the Sanhedrin. Instead, he tells them what they need to hear. He shows them what they need to see. He shows them that they're the ones who have abandoned God. And he does this in a really interesting way. He does it by riffing off of the accusations about the temple and the law. Uh, Firstly, he shows that they used the temple to try and contain God. And secondly, although God gave them this law, they still resist his ways. Now, he doesn't say all this up front. Remember, Stephen is very wise. If he did that, they'd cut him off. They'd boot him out. Instead, he reminds them of God's saving deeds to them in the past. And it's through this story that he shows them just how far they've wandered from his ways. So before we dive into these points, let's quickly skim over the story of salvation, as Stephen depicts here. And we're back! I think. Uh, thank you, guys. Thanks so much. Okay, given that was... I'm sure you're talking about the passage, so you're probably well along now, but let's just recap where we've gotten to. So remember, Stephen is wise. He's got these accusations about the law and the temple. He doesn't say them up front because he's wise. So instead, what he does is he shows them God's saving work to the Israelites in the Old Testament. And it's through this, he shows just how far they've wandered from God's way. So how about we dive into this salvation story as Stephen depicts it. From verse 2, and this is going to be quick, guys, so you may not be able to read verse by verse. Verse 2, Stephen starts with God's foundational promises to Abraham and his descendants. Now, I know a lot of you guys have done the intro to the Bible course, so you'll know that they involve land, offspring, blessing, a great nation in God's place under his rule and blessing. And from there, Stephen then shows how these promises unfold through Abraham's descendants. Four four generations later, uh, you'll see a a slide on the screen. Four generations later, uh, we see God works through Joseph to save his people from starvation. Around 300 years later, from verse 17, 
God works through Moses to rescue his people from slavery and sustain them through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. Fast forward now to verse 44. Through Joshua, God delivers his people into the promised land. And then later, for a period, God's kingdom is established there with David and Solomon ruling under him. God's people in his place under his rule and blessing. It's a wonderful account of God's saving deeds in the Old Testament. I just want to encourage you to go away, have a read through it, be blown away by a great God. And as mentioned, it's through this story as Stephen carefully shows his accusers how they've abandoned God. Let's dive a bit deeper and see how he does this. So firstly, in response to the temple accusation, Stephen shows them that they have the temple, but they've been using it to try and contain God. You see, the temple was God's gracious way of showing a special presence with his people through the tabernacle. But somehow along the way, Israel got in their heads that through this building in Jerusalem, they could contain God. But Stephen shows them that God is bigger than that. You can't contain him to a place, let alone a temple. Coming back to Stephen's speech, have a skim through. How many times does he mention the word Jerusalem? He mentions plenty of places. How many times does he say Jerusalem? You see in Kath and Kim, Kath has this kind of speed reading thing. You can do that now. Just go over the pages. Verse 2 to 50, it's a big fat zero. Uh, By contrast, what do we see? We see God made promises to Abraham in Mesopotamia. He worked through Joseph in Egypt. God worked through Moses in Midian, then Egypt, then the desert. Stephen's showing them that God is not restricted to Jerusalem. Across history, he's been dynamically working out his salvation plans through different people, through times, through different places. And if God's not contained to Jerusalem, then he's certainly not contained to a temple in Jerusalem. And Stephen rams this point home towards the end of his speech. Verse 48, he says, Although Solomon built the temple, the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? Have you ever had a moment where you're just blown away by creation? Maybe you're at the beach and you're just staring at the vast horizon. Maybe it's it's nighttime and you're just staring at the countless stars. It can be a wonderful thing uh, seeing creation, but when you see how expansive it all is, it makes you realize just how tiny you are. By contrast, what's God's relationship to the world? What do we see in this, in this passage? Verse 50, his hands, they made it all. Verse 49, heaven is his throne and earth, it's his footstool. A footstool, that little piece of furniture which you might rest your feet on at the end of the day. That little insignificant piece of furniture. While this world may seem big, God is so much bigger. The Israelites thought they could restrict God to a temple, but it only shows how far they've wandered from a right understanding of who their God is. Because God is uncontainable. So it's worth pausing for a moment and just considering this for ourselves. Are there ways that we we too might try and contain God? 
It's not going to be a temple that was destroyed in 70 AD. But are there still ways we might be tempted to contain God? I wonder if sometimes we do this when we come to his word. You know, we hold God's Bible in our hands. And as as we grow in understanding, we think somehow we've mastered God. Might even be that some of us are doing that tonight as we're hearing God's word. Don't let that happen. Because as we hear God's word, it's God, you know, the God of the universe, the God who created everything. It's him who is speaking to us. It's him who is mastering us. We've got a sovereign God who can't be contained. But as we'll see now, it doesn't stop people from trying to resist his plans. And this brings us to Stephen's second point. In response to the accusation about the law, Stephen shows them in the narrative that God may have given them the law, yet they still foolishly resist his will. And to make this point, Stephen establishes a recurring pattern in Israel's history. It goes a bit like this. God sends a deliverer. The deliverer faces hostility from Israel. God's plan succeeds anyway. And we see this with Joshua, but especially we see it in the Moses account. Verse 20, Stephen describes Moses as a beautiful child, a bringer of peace and reconciliation. And yet, verse 25, Israel reject him. Verse 25, he assumed his brothers would understand that God would give him deliverance through him, but they did not understand. We see this especially play out at Mount Sinai. After God delivered his people from slavery, God provides Moses with the law, God's special revelation of his will to his people. But what, does, what do the Israelites do with this privilege? They reject him for idols. Verse 41, they even made a calf in those days, offered sacrifice to the idols, and were celebrating what their hands had made. Throughout Israel's history, God sends deliverers to his people. He even gives them the law. But his people keep resisting his will. Now, as Stephen depicts this pattern of rebellion, you can imagine the Israelites in the Sanhedrin. They'd be hearing this and thinking, yeah, exactly. You're that rebel, Stephen. But right at the end, Stephen does something. He turns the tables on them. And suddenly, he becomes the accuser. And at this point, he leaves uh, telling the story in a narrative, and he makes his accusations loud and clear. He says, yes, there'll always be people who resist God's will, and those people, they're you. Here are his words from verse 51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did, so do you. Stephen says to them, they are just like the ancestors we see in this story. They're stiff-necked. They resist the Holy Spirit. They can't take God's ways to heart. And then he brings his argument home. He shows them that the ultimate sign, they've abandoned God's ways. It's shown in how they treated Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the righteous one, God in the flesh, who perfectly embodies all God's ways. He's the long-awaited Messiah, the deliverer who came to bring his people, not into Canaan like Joshua, 
but into his eternal and perfect kingdom. How you respond to this Jesus, it exposes. It exposes who you are, exposes whether you're aligned with God and his ways or whether you're opposed to it. And how did the Israelites respond to Jesus? Have a look, verse 52. Stephen says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. While their ancestors killed the prophets who predicted Jesus' coming, they've made a graver mistake. They met their promised Messiah, God in the flesh, and they hung him on a tree. They may have the law, but they don't keep it. They've abandoned God in his ways. Now, in hearing these things like the Israelites back in chapter 2, this reality, it should have cut them to the very heart. Should have led them to ask, what can we do? But sadly, just like their ancestors, they reject their deliverer. We see this play out in Stephen's final moments. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged in their hearts and gnashed their teeth at him. It's a terrifying scene, like gnarling animals. These Israelites, they want Stephen's blood. And sadly, this world is not long for Stephen. But God does something incredible in this moment. Have a look, verse 55. But Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw God's glory with Jesus standing at the right hand of God. In these final moments, God provides Stephen with the most assuring vision. He sees Jesus, his risen Lord and Saviour, waiting to receive him into his eternal kingdom. And yet as Stephen recounts this amazing vision to the mob, it just enrages them all the more. Verse 57 Then they screamed at the top of their voices, cover their ears, and together rushed against him. They threw him out of the city, and they began to stone him. And as Stephen's being pelted to death with stones, he says two more things. And we need to listen carefully to what he has to say, because in these words, even under the the worst possible persecution, Stephen reveals the wonders and joys of following Jesus. Verse 59. They were were stoning Stephen as he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In his vision before, Stephen saw the risen Jesus waiting to receive him into his eternal kingdom. Stephen knows his life is secure in Christ, the one who has conquered death. And so even as death approaches him, He's assured he's going to be with Jesus, and that's better by far. Friends, do we know this comfort too? Do we know that whatever opposition or trials we face in this world, your life is secure in Christ? Well, while Stephen's being stoned to death, he kneels down, and with a loud cry, he says one final thing. He says, Lord, Do not charge them with this sin. And saying this, he fell asleep. What an incredible moment this is right here. 
as people are stoning Stephen to death. What does he cry? He cries words of mercy for them. And please know this, that the only reason Stephen could show this kind of radical mercy to them was because Jesus had shown that kind of radical mercy to him. Jesus, the one who was, as as he was hanging on the cross, he cried, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Where Stephen deserved eternal condemnation for his rebellion against God, through Jesus, he received forgiveness. He gained adoption, as we learned yesterday. He gained adoption into God's eternal family. And Stephen, he never recovered from this grace. It transformed him. It filled him with a desire for others to know this grace, even his murderers. In Stephen's final moments, not even the biggest stone could knock out Jesus' mercy This week, I've been reflecting on this. I've been praying for all of us here today, praying that everyone in this room will know this radical mercy in Jesus, and that like Stephen, we'll just never recover from it. It will shape and transform us in everything. Well, from this stoning of Stephen, we see this massive fallout uh, for the early church. Chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. The church comes under great trial here. And as these events unfolded, you could understand if if the people despaired. Before this, God had been doing miraculous things. He'd been rescuing the apostles. He'd been raising their numbers up. But now one of their own had been killed. And their people are scattering. It it, It could appear like God's plans have been thwarted here. But as Stephen reminded us today, God is uncontainable, and despite opposition, his merciful plans will prevail. Let's have another look at verse 1 there. Where is it that the church scattered to? Judea? Samaria? And with these words, we're transported right back to chapter 1 of Acts, where we see the Lord Jesus, who's risen, speaking to his followers. And he says to them that they will be his witnesses. Where? To Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is not simply a scattering of the church here. Leading up to this moment, Jesus, he's been growing his people and he's been mobilizing them. And now through this moment, he's dispersing them so that they might take the gospel to the ends of the earth, even Australia, even Sydney, even Carlton. Jesus is not just bringing about his plans through his faithful people like Stephen, but he's also doing it through persecution and even through the persecutors. On that last point, did you notice who approved Stephen's murder? Chapter 8, verse 1, it was Saul, a prominent Jewish Pharisee. And from this moment, Saul begins to tear apart the church. And yet in the coming weeks, We see Jesus transform Saul into Paul. He'll go from being the most avid persecutor of Christians to being a follower of Jesus who takes the message out to the world. Doesn't that just blow your mind? 
no matter what opposition there may be, Jesus' merciful plans will prevail. Going on to this week, we might hear of believers all around the world who are suffering persecution, where the church is under threat. But remember, Jesus' merciful plans will prevail. And as you seek to live for Jesus and hold out this gospel message to the world, you'll face resistance. You may look down upon, misunderstood. You might be mistreated. Is that a reason not to share the gospel? Not at all, is it? We too are Jesus' messengers. Instead, take comfort. Keep living for his eternal kingdom. Jesus will prevail. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, may we never recover from the mercy you've shown us in Jesus. Thank you for the comfort of knowing that Jesus is ruling over his kingdom now. He is uncontainable and his merciful plans are unstoppable. And in light of this reality, please embolden us to be faithful to him that despite resistance, we may hold out, to the, hold out the gospel to a world that desperately need to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen.